welcome to the Borderlines podcast, uh, Peter Edelman. Uh, I, Deanna and Steve are away today, but uh, I have the, the pleasure of being here today with Amanda Lord, uh, who I've uh, had the opportunity to work with several times uh, over the past few years, uh, or uh, be on the other side of the table from in, in court, uh, which uh, Amanda works at the Department of Justice uh, in the uh, it's a public safety section, but specializing in extradition, uh, in extradition among other things. And maybe Amanda, you can talk a little bit about what it is that you guys do in this very esoteric section that you you seem to work in at the Department of Justice. And we'll, we're going to have a discussion today about uh, about extradition uh, and uh, where the state of the law and what's going on with extradition in, in Canada these days. Well, thank you for inviting me, Peter. I am part of the Criminal Law and International Assistance Group. Most of the immigration lawyers will have been dealing with the public safety um, group. Um, We are a separate section that deals with the extradition matters. Uh, So there are six lawyers in my section um, in the Department of Justice, and we deal with extradition and mutual legal assistance matters, as well as various um, criminal matters that are not domestic prosecutions. So the Um, First thing I'm obliged to say is that although I am an employee of the Department of Justice, I am here today in my personal capacity and not as an official spokesman for the Department of Justice. I'm required to give this disclaimer, so there it is. Um, So in terms of any any views that are expressed in the course of this program, they are my personal views and not those of any official government person. We therefore, won't hold you to any of these. Uh, hold you to any of the views. Uh, should should we cross paths again? There you go. <laughs> or, yes. or rather, when we cross paths again. Yes. Uh, okay. No, that's uh, that's great, and uh, thanks a lot for coming. It's uh, it's great that we can have uh, the, the the participation on the, the podcast. It's really been great from a number of different people, and it's good it's good to have different perspectives as well. Well, extradition is one of those areas that there's there's a lot of confusion over. I'm often asked when I tell people that I do extradition work. Um, there's a lot of confusion between immigration deportation proceedings, for example, or what occurs in domestic prosecutions. And it is a very separate process with a different set of principles that apply. So it's important that people understand the differences between them. So why don't we let's dive in and let's talk about what is this. So what is what is extradition? Extradition is essentially an agreement between states to send an individual from one country to the other for the purposes of prosecution or um, serving a sentence. So, for example, if I were to go to Germany and commit an offense in Germany, I go to to Germany and I assault somebody, and then I come back to Canada. Germany has no authority to come to Canada and arrest me. Their sovereignty exists within their own territory. They don't have any, any legal authority to come here and take me back to Germany in order to prosecute me. If I am in Canada, in Canada's territorial jurisdiction, Germany has to approach the Canadian government and say, you have somebody in Canada that we want to prosecute. Will you send them to us? And that request is an extradition request. So when a request like that is made, it's a diplomatic process. It's a request from one state to another. These are formal diplomatic requests that go through the International Assistance Group in Ottawa. And the Minister of Justice is the minister who's responsible uh, for extradition matters. So those requests come in. The minister will review them and determine whether or not they meet certain basic criteria. 
And if it does, then the minister can authorize uh, the extradition process to begin here in Canada. And depending which province it's in, um, the authorization will go to the Department of Justice office uh, here in BC, for example. It comes into our office if the person is located in British Columbia. The Attorney General of Canada's representatives, such as myself, um, will undertake the process of arresting that person, taking them through the extradition process to determine whether or not they will, in fact, be transferred to Germany per the request. So basically at the, at the front end, what will happen is there will be a diplomatic request. Will that be done through uh, foreign affairs or anything like that? Are they, are they involved in that front end of the process or does it go directly to the, the Department of Justice? Uh, so if there was a request, say, from Germany or more commonly what we'll see is from the United States. Um, so if somebody, if, if a state wanted someone arrested, they would make a request through Washington, through their processes in Washington. That's right. So that request would then go through diplomatic channels to Ottawa. Yes. Um, and and how does that decision making process happen in Ottawa? What's the what what exactly goes on in terms of them making that request uh, or or deciding whether or not um, like what goes into that decision making process? Well, whether or not we extradite somebody is is dependent on a, a number of things. The in terms of the the diplomatic level. Um, the arrangements between states can be expressed in a treaty. The United States, for example, has an extradition treaty with Canada, which sets out when those countries will ac- agree on sort of a, a principled level to extradite to one another. Those states that do not have treaties with Canada can request extradition through, for example, um, a UN convention. The UN Convention on Corruption, for example, has provisions for extradition between the signatories to the convention. So that's another process by which you can request extradition as a foreign state. Or there's a a process um, called letters rogatory, which is essentially a a one-off. So you don't have an agreement. You don't already have defined set of circumstances under which you would consider extradition. Um, these are a direct request from a government to Canada saying, we want this person. These are the reasons why. And so those requests have to satisfy Canada of something called double criminality. We don't extradite for just anything. We extradite if there is a case for prosecution in the foreign state. The whole purpose of extradition is to send somebody out for a trial. So we don't send people out for questioning. So if you want to extradite somebody, you have to demonstrate that you have a prosecution case against them. You will put them on trial. You have your evidence in place. You are, in fact, going to prosecute them. Or if they've already been prosecuted, that that person has been sentenced for an offense in your country and you want them extradited in order to serve that sentence. So the requesting state provides a description of why it is that they want an individual. This in Canada is called the conduct-based standard. So when they are considering what it is that the person sought for, it's a description of the conduct. Amanda went to Germany. She went into a restaurant. She got into an argument with somebody. She hit that person, knocked them over, caused them serious injury. She then went to Canada. Under our our law, that would be, um, that is a criminal offense, and we wish to prosecute her for it. We have the required evidence. Here it is, the description of the evidence. Um, And therefore, 
that evidence would justify prosecution. It is, it is available for trial in our country. So essentially, the foreign state is providing a statement to the Canadian government that the conduct underlying the request is a crime in their country and justifies prosecution, and that the evidence is available in that state. In other words, they can use the evidence that they've, they've put forward for the purposes of the prosecution. So when a request like this comes in, um, the International Assistance Group in Ottawa, as the minister's delegated representatives, will review the material and determine if, in fact, those requirements have been met. One of the other requirements for extradition is that it be a serious enough offence. We don't send people out for shoplifting. Under the Extradition Act, which is the domestic legislation governing extradition in Canada, there's a requirement, subject to treaties or other agreements, that the minimum is a prison sentence of two years as a, as a potential punishment. So, again, these are serious offences. These are indictable offences here in Canada. Treaties can have different levels. For example, the treaty for, with the United States is a one-year incarceration requirement uh, before extradition can be sought. So those preliminary requirements are assessed by the minister in terms of the foreign offence. How serious is it? Does it come within those requirements? And then the minister will also look to the criminal code here in Canada and say, well, would this conduct be criminal here in Canada? Because it's not just whether it's an offence in the foreign state. The question is, is it criminal conduct that would be culpable here in Canada? Other countries have crimes that we don't consider criminal. Adultery, for example. Some states may have very serious punishments for adultery. Here in Canada, we do not prosecute people for adultery. So we would not extradite somebody to face adultery charges in a foreign state. Polygamy, maybe, but adultery, no. Well, okay. yes, uh, there's uh, certainly interpretation <laughs> issues in terms of Canadian crimes. But in general, when the minister is looking at that question, again, it's based on the conduct. So what is the description of the offense? If this had occurred in Canada... Would this be considered criminal? If I walk into a restaurant in Canada and get into an altercation with somebody and hit them and cause some serious injury, is that a criminal offense in Canada? Yes. What would we call it in Canada? Whatever it's called in the foreign state and whatever their evidentiary requirements are, what would it be? What are the requirements in Canada? Well, here in Canada, the criminal code makes provision for assault. Um, assault is an offense. And the conduct that I've just described to you would fulfill the requirements of the elements of, of assault here in Canada. So in that circumstance, in that example, that's uh, a situation where, yes, a German request for my extradition on those facts would likely be approved because it meets the, the basic requirements of double criminality. It's criminal both in Germany and here in Canada. And the um, offense of assault is, can be an adult and indictable offense. So it's, it's a serious enough offense. And you're, I guess, a couple of the things that, that come from what you've said. First, using letters rogatory on the face of it, there's nowhere in the world that Canada couldn't, in principle, send somebody or, or extradite somebody. That's right. Um, although in practice, it's highly unlikely for diplomatic or for other reasons that we would be extraditing people, for example, to North Korea or uh, to regimes where they're more serious problems. And we'll get a chance to talk a little bit more about that, uh, given one of the cases that's pending before the Supreme Court right now as to where those limits might be. 
Um, the uh, just briefly in terms of the other side. So we talk about extradition to Canada. Um, now, do all with the with letters letters rogatory or other? Uh, there's often discussion about whether or not there are countries where there is no extradition treaty and where you'd be able to stay and and not face the potential for extradition to Canada. Um, the process in other countries is often somewhat different uh, in terms of extradition. Um, we've recently seen a case with the Netherlands where someone was extradited here, but under very different terms and conditions uh, than what we would see in sending our citizens overseas. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Do you, are you involved in the, in the other people coming in the other direction in terms of extradition to Canada? Or is that, uh, uh, is that done by a different department uh, that, that you're not as much involved in? Um, my group here does not deal with extraditions from um, other countries into Canada. Those kinds of requests would be made at the request of a public prosecutor here in Canada. So either a provincial prosecutor or a federal prosecutor who would put together the same kind of thing, a description of the conduct, why it is that the person is sought, that would be sent through the International Assistance Group in Ottawa to the foreign state. So anybody who is um, a prosecutor in Canada can make that kind of request through the Extradition Act. The Extradition Act sets out the provisions for that. Um, Again, it comes down to do we have a treaty with that country? What are the terms of that treaty? Um, how how a country responds to that request is very much a function of their own domestic law and practice. And I mean, just from uh, um, I, I guess in terms of extraditions to Canada, the process is different in other countries, and some other countries may not extradite or put terms on extraditions, or whether they extradite their own citizens. Canada doesn't treat citizens any differently in the extradition process uh, in right. the sense that you face extradition to the United States, whether you're a citizen, a permanent resident or a foreign national, you could still face extradition. Um, the, in terms of uh, some of the countries or the, the scope of countries where you've been involved in extraditions or that you're aware of extraditions, could you just maybe just give a cross section of some of the countries that, that you've been, or that you've seen actual extraditions to um, sure. I mean, the, the extradition process is is endlessly interesting and variable. I mean, certainly in terms of treaties, Canada's treaties largely overlap with the former British Commonwealth. So um, in terms of the list of, of treaty partners that we have, it's available online. All of Canada's extradition treaties are available online. Um, and it's a very wide range of countries that we have extradition treaties with, um, primarily with, well, I mean, we have a very... We extradite both to civil jurisdiction countries as well as common law jurisdiction countries. Civil jurisdiction countries often do have um, provision that they would prosecute their citizen rather than extradite them. Um, the, the basis on which that will be sought is, is variable depending on the country. Um, different countries also have quirks that come into extradition like time limits on how long you can prosecute somebody for things. So, for example, here in Canada, if you are wanted for murder, they, there is essentially no time limit for your prosecution for that offense. In some countries, they do have limits. And if you are seeking to, they seek somebody's extradition and that person is not returned to them within that time frame, 
essentially your extradition is over because they are no longer going to be putting them on trial. So your purpose for extradition has changed. So there is a very wide range of how different countries respond to these these things. Um, and each individual state has the ability to make those decisions. I mean, as a state actor, that's part of, of their own um, law, extradition, in terms of how it's implemented within that state is a matter of domestic law. So, uh, I mean, maybe to give an idea of some of the recent cases that we've seen come out of British Columbia and other places, we have seen extraditions to India, Thailand. The vast majority of our extraditions are with the United States. Yes. We will see extraditions to Europe, to the UK, to Australia, and, and a number of other places. Um, again, the bulk of them being to Commonwealth countries or former Commonwealth countries. And uh, so we've got, there's two stages to the extradition process. Once the the minister, we've talked about the, the minister of justice issuing an, an authority, what, what in technical terms will be an authority to proceed. So uh, once the minister of justice decides that an extradition is going to go ahead in Canada, um, the first stage of that, so there'll be a bail hearing, usually an, usually an arrest and a bail hearing, um, the person will either be released or detained. It looks a lot like a, a normal criminal bail hearing um, with some extra advantages for the crown uh the to put that somewhat lightly the 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 case law is not favorable to the defense let's put it that way uh the um the next stage uh will be a committal hearing before in in our jurisdiction the bc supreme court or the superior court of the province um so Let's talk a little bit about what that looks like. And in particular, uh, maybe we can talk uh, about where things have changed in the last 10 years or so, uh, in particular with the new extradition. Well, I guess the new extradition act is a bit more than 10 years now. So I've been doing this longer than I think. 1999. Oh, then I have been doing this much longer than I thought I had. But anyway, so in any event, uh, with the new extradition act and then some interpretation of that act and and of some, some other provisions, uh, we can maybe dig into it a little bit more, but why don't we talk a little bit? What is what does a committal hearing look like in front of? Because uh, uh, it definitely doesn't. Uh, it although it's in the uh, in the superior court, uh, it and everybody's dressed like they would be for a criminal trial. It doesn't look at all like a criminal trial. Uh, and do you want to just describe a little bit about what a committal hearing actually looks like and what it is that you as as uh, um, and, and who it is that you're working for, because you you're not uh, there on behalf of the Minister of Justice. Uh, you're you're actually putting on a different hat, uh, representing the, rec- the requesting state. Uh, do you want to talk a little bit about that and how that works? Well, in terms of the um, who is there for whom, uh, this is an area that is is somewhat debated. I mean, the Attorney General of Canada is before the court, uh, implementing her obligations under the Extradition Act and the relevant treaty on behalf of the requesting state, because the requesting state has no standing to come into our courts and seek somebody's extradition. The Attorney General of Canada has that authority, and that's why it's the Attorney General of Canada who is there in front of the court. The primary difference that you're going to see in terms of an extradition committal hearing is, in most cases, an absence of witnesses. And this is because the Extradition Act has provision for something called the record of the case. And the record of the case is the written document that I was describing from the foreign state setting out who is sought 
and what they're sought for, the conduct that underlies the extradition request. Because within the Extradition Act are evidentiary provisions that state that so long as that written summary is certified by an appropriate official to say that the evidence contained in it would justify committal for trial in the foreign state, justifies prosecution in the foreign state, and that the evidence is available for trial, that that content is admissible as evidence before the court. There are exceptions within the Act for uh, Canadian gathered evidence. If the record of the case includes evidence that has been gathered within Canada, that evidence must conform to Canadian evidentiary rules. Um, There has been discussion in the case law with respect to hearsay, for example. Um, So really what you're looking at is fundamentally what is the evidence in the record of the case. If you have witness evidence from a foreign state, there's essentially a witness will say within the record of the case, there's, it will be admitted so long as properly certified. And a witness will say is... Well, for example... Is, is just a summary of what the witness will say? That's right. Okay. Um, you know, that, that a witness is expected to testify that. Okay. Um, then in terms of the Canadian gathered evidence, if the witness is in Canada and the record of the case says, Amanda Lord will testify at trial that one would have an initial thought, well, that's hearsay under Canadian law, so it's not admissible. But the actual substance of that evidence is a witness. That witness is going to be in the court saying this. And so the Supreme Court of Canada has confirmed that that kind of summary of Canadian gathered evidence is fine because at essence what it is is a witness testifying to the court with respect to that evidence. So you don't run into issues there. Where you do run into issues is where you have um, Canadian gathered evidence under search warrants, for example. Somebody um, is arrested and searched and they find something on them. Uh, Somebody's car is stopped in Canada and they find something in the vehicle. There may be Section 8 issues arising from that Canadian gathered evidence. And the court here in Canada can deal with that evidence on that basis, the charter rights of the individual are engaged by the fact that it was gathered in Canada. So Section 8 of the charter sets out uh, a restriction on uh, search and seizure, protects us from uh, unreasonable search and seizure. That's right. Uh, and so that that evidence, in terms of challenging that evidence, so what we'll see from the, the defense perspective is that what we get in practice is what's called a record of the case that will be certified by, uh, not by you, but by the, uh, usually an attorney um, or, or a district attorney in the United States, for example. So, I mean, most of the cases we deal with are, are U.S. cases, but it could be anywhere. So the uh, the prosecutor in the requesting state will sign this to say, this is the evidence that we have available and this is admissible in our court. Now, um is there any ability to say, well, I actually don't think that's admissible in the United States, uh, or is that something that our courts are even going to look at uh, at all? Um, no, the courts aren't going to look at that um, because the question of whether or not something is admissible in a foreign court is for that foreign court to decide. And Canadian courts don't tell American courts what to do with evidence in front of them. I mean, that's uh, something that if you if there is an issue about the foreign gathered evidence, that will need to be addressed 
within the the trial proper in the foreign state. We can always come up with some exceptions sure. to these these generalized statements, but you know, if, if you're saying, well, you know, this this American search was improper, well, the Canadian court is not going to be assessing that. So if the prosecutor in the in the requesting state is of the view that something is admissible, then our court's going to assume that it is admissible. Yes. And the uh, so with respect to the Canadian gathered evidence, and this is where we'll we'll see often the the challenges. A lot of these prosecutions are, are in fact cross border uh, cross border investigations. So say take for example a drug trafficking or or telemarketing fraud, which are the most common cases that we're dealing with with the United States, where you'll have some kind of trafficking across the Canada-U.S. border, um, for example, to ship marijuana into the United States or engaging in telemarketing fraud in California from a call center in Vancouver or something like that. Um, The decision as to where to prosecute um, is something that will be made by the prosecuting authorities on either side. But you're not involved in those decisions. Those decisions have already been made by the time the file gets to you. Is that right? Well, the very fact that a state is requesting somebody's extradition for prosecution uh, is a statement that that state considers themselves to have jurisdiction to prosecute that person. I mean, why would you ask for their extradition for the purpose of prosecution if you didn't think you had the jurisdiction to prosecute them? I think also the question of where a person can be prosecuted is one that a lot of people don't understand because it is the state that decides whether they have jurisdiction to prosecute. So here in Canada, for example, we can prosecute people for things that occur within Canada. But there are also provisions in the criminal code for prosecuting people for offenses that they commit in other countries. A number of years ago, there was the the case of the fellow who swirled out his face, who was engaged in child prostitution in Thailand. So the actual act, the actual offense took place in a foreign country. But under the criminal code, that kind of offense is deemed to have occurred in Canada. And therefore, even though you you were not in Canada at the time, you can be prosecuted in Canada for it. There are also offenses in the criminal code dealing with things like terrorism, where it doesn't matter where in the world it happened or who did it, if uh, a Canadian citizen is involved or if it uh, is an act against, for example, a Canadian government um, building institution elsewhere in the world um, where the victim is Canadian, then Canada can take jurisdiction and prosecute a person. So the fact that you aren't in a country at the time that the offense is committed doesn't necessarily determine whether or not some other country can prosecute for this offense. And I think this is becoming more and more important to understand in in the global Internet age, because there are a number of offenses which very easily cross borders on the Internet. The classic example is child pornography. Um, possession of child pornography in and of itself, just the fact that you have child pornography is an offense under Canadian law. Sending child pornography to somebody wherever in the world they are is an offense under Canadian law. And lots of other countries have those kinds of provisions in their own criminal codes. So if you are on the internet and you are seeking pictures from children in foreign countries, 
you are exchanging explicit sexual messages with children in foreign countries and you don't know where they are. Unfortunately for you, whatever state that child is in can take jurisdiction and say, we want this person because the effect of their act is being felt here. Our children in our country are being affected by this behavior and we want to prosecute that person. This can come as a real surprise for people, particularly when there are vast differences in sentencing regimes. There are, in some cases here in Canada, shockingly light sentences, in my personal opinion, for offenses involving children. Other countries do not take the same view. And so you can find situations where people are involved, for example, in sexual assaults of children that occur in Canada and then sexual assaults of children in the United States. And they will say, well, I'm here in Canada and I don't want to go down to the United States because they have a mandatory minimum of, say, 25 years or life imprisonment for one instance of sexual assault against a child. Whereas here in Canada, I'd be facing a maximum of, you know, name a number. And so... People have to understand that sentencing regimes reflect public policy decisions of the states where they are implemented. And so some places may consider sexual assault or drug trafficking, etc., far more serious offenses than our parliament here in Canada has chosen to consider them. And so when you are engaged in this kind of behavior, you are exposing yourself to potential prosecution by a foreign state. And the consequences in that foreign state may be far greater than they are here in Canada. People do not get to choose where they are prosecuted. Well, and, and often, uh, well, and we recently dealt with a case where this, this issue was front and center in, in, uh, in, in the Court of Appeal, where um, the, uh, our, there was a, a group of, of men who had been hired to hollow out logs. Um, the logs were hollowed out in Kelowna or Kamloops, or I think in Kelowna. And uh, they were filled with marijuana and sent to Ontario, California. Uh, so there's a town in California called Ontario. These guys never left Canada. Um, it's not clear whether or not they knew that these logs were going to California or whether they knew where these logs were going. Um, the logs did end up in California um, and uh, filled with marijuana. And there was a, a case enough to merit a prosecution in Canada, or at least that was the view. Um, the, the, the court found that there was enough of a case that this would have merited prosecution in Canada. And it likely was an offense in Canada as well. So in other words, or not likely, it was an offense in Canada. So in other words, the, the in this case, trafficking in marijuana or having those quantities of transporting marijuana would have been an offense here and there. So you could have prosecuted them here, you could have prosecuted them there. Um, the big difference being that here, there would have been a sentence of maybe a few months in jail uh, for the type of offense that was involved. Uh, you know, Even if there was a relatively lengthy jail term would have been in the 18 month range or something like that. In California, the minimum penalty was 15 years if they were convicted, unless they worked out some kind of deal. Um, so those uh, that was argued in the case as to whether or not you actually needed to know. And our court of appeal said you don't actually need to know where where which where stuff is going. Um, I I have some issues with that. I, I think that's uh, I think in some cases it makes sense 
um, where you are deliberately, um, you deliberately don't care, right? So if you're just on the internet with random children and you don't care where they are, then you're taking the risk that these kids are in Arizona or in California or whatever it is, where there may be much more severe penalties. Um, where I see a bit of a problem with that is when you're dealing with, uh, for example, in the marijuana case, and this was the example that we had raised with the Court of Appeal, was somebody who grows marijuana, sells it to a guy, and that guy then puts it in logs and sends it off to Kazakhstan. Now, at that point, you're liable for extradition to Kazakhstan because you sold some guy a pound of marijuana that you grew not knowing where it was going to go. Um, I, I think that there's, uh, although if you, if you frame the conspiracy broadly enough, there wouldn't have to be any knowledge. And it's clearly an offense and it's part of the offense. The people who grew the marijuana that went in the logs that went to California were not prosecuted and they're not being sought in California. But they were as involved or had as much knowledge about where this stuff was going as the, the guys who put it in the logs or who hollowed out the logs. Uh, so I, I don't uh, I don't know that I, I think there's some problems with the way our Court of Appeal dealt with it. And I think eventually the, the Supreme Court's going to have to deal with it. The Supreme Court declined to deal with it in this particular case. Um, and so that is the state of the law. And it, it is what it is. Uh, I think that as we move forward in a more transnational world and, and more and more we see international connections and, and things that are moving through various jurisdictions and between the whether it's on the internet or through telecommunications or through other mechanisms that we're going to have to start dealing with these issues as to what it means to make yourself liable to uh, mandatory minimums in jails in the United States. Um, in, in this particular case I, I uh, the developments in the United States since arguments were made in the case. And at the time, arguments were made in the Court of Appeal. There was a lot of uh, uh, the information that had come back from the United States to justify the 15-year mandatory minimums was like, don't worry, we have these mechanisms, we're dealing with these mandatory minimums, we don't apply them strictly, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, there's now the clients who are down there are facing a different attorney general who has given very different directions and takes a very hard line on, uh, on marijuana, takes a very hard line on mandatory minimums. Um, and subjecting people to those in Canada would be completely unacceptable um, in some cases. So what, what we see with certain types of sentencing in other cases, in other countries, um, and we can, the, the Supreme Court's going to deal with this very shortly in the Badesha case, where we have a much more extreme example of uh, a country that, in fact, crosses the line on human rights violations and that people are facing extradition. But is that something now on Badesha, that's not something for the committal judge to consider at all. So the, the judge, the judge wouldn't consider what's going to happen to somebody when they get to the other side. We've talked about some mandatory minimums and you talk about torture, the death penalty or things like that. None of that is considered at the committal stage. Is that is that right? Correct. The committal judge's only task is to determine whether the prosecution evidence is sufficient or would be sufficient in Canada for a person to be sent to trial in Canada. 
So the, they aren't, the committal judge is not considering what defenses that might be available at a trial. They're not considering the foreign law. They're not considering whether the evidence would satisfy the foreign requirements of the offense. They are not considering sentencing any of those sorts of things. The only issue in front of a committal judge is does the evidence that the prosecution have satisfy the elements of a, the Canadian offense? So is it's a very limited approach. There is some scope for the person sought, um, but it has to be understood that when we talk about challenging that evidence, the prosecution evidence that's being put forward, it isn't a question of weighing whether it's believed or not. At the ultimate trial, there will be witnesses brought forward and a judge will decide, do I believe them or not, credibility issues, those you know, cross-examination, all of those things that, that normally happen in a trial. At a committal hearing, none of that happens. The only question is, if this evidence is believed, if the prosecution evidence is believed, could there be, not will there be, but could there be a finding of guilt? And the uh, so it sounds a lot like what happens at a preliminary inquiry. Yes, um, and it used to be that the test was the same. So yes. that the uh, the test on a preliminary inquiry for those not familiar with criminal law is whether there's a prima facie case. In other words, is there some evidence on each element of the offense that, if believed, could lead to conviction by a properly instructed jury. Um, and that test is essentially what was applied for many years, is, is, is referred to based on the Supreme Court of, uh, of Canada's decision in Shepard, uh, was the, uh, or Shepard was, um, in, was the, uh, the standard for many years. And in two, it was 2005, we had the decision in Ferris. 2006. Uh, 2006. So we saw the, the, the Supreme Court of Canada revisit that test. Um, and make it a bit more robust in the in the extradition context. So there's there's a bit more. Uh, it's it's a little bit more robust. I don't know if we need to go into details around what happened in in, uh, in Ferris, but maybe we could talk very briefly about what. Um, how how do you see things having changed since Ferris? In in terms of has has there been a shift in the way that extraditions play out or? Uh, in terms of, of what that means in the extradition context. So Ferris was decided in 2006. Ferris came out of the 1999 amendments to the Extradition Act because the 1999 amendments introduced this concept of the record of the case, this written summary of the evidence. Prior to that time, the evidence was put forward in in affidavits and there was a direct connection between what a witness would would say, you know, a person would have sworn an affidavit saying this is my evidence. It, it wasn't a summary in the same way. So the the um, authenticity of the evidence, the reliability of that evidence, judges had a way of assessing that beyond just essentially a, a certification from a state saying, you know, this is the evidence and it's available for trial. And the judge had a greater ability to assess that. So when you are dealing with a record of the case, the question in Ferris was whether these sort of this summary form of evidence was constitutional or whether it was a breach of Section 7. And so the court looked at the record of the case and they said, well, yes, it is constitutional so long as 
the person sought has the ability to put forward evidence to challenge those basic presumptions. The presumptions that arise on certification are that the evidence is available for trial and that the evidence is is reliable. The word reliable has spilled a lot of judicial ink, but essentially what reliable means is that the, the evidence has integrity. It is accurate in terms of what's in the record of the case. Does it have value to the trier of fact? An example that I will give to people comes out of a case called France versus Diab. And in that case, there was use of a handwriting analysis. And so there was a comparison between the handwriting of the person sought and the handwriting of a a person who was a terrorist suspect. And so as they got into this, it, the person saw it and said, well, this, is, this handwriting sample that you've used isn't my handwriting. And in fact, it was found that that was the case. So that piece of evidence, that analysis of this piece of handwriting versus this, the terrorist suspect had no value whatsoever for the court. It, so it was found not to be reliable evidence. And the judge didn't consider that. And we've we've seen other cases, for example, in our court of appeal with from in the Wilson case, for example, where there was a brief uh, encounter in a dark alley, and that an ide- I, uh, the description of the identity evidence as to identifying the suspect in question was considered to be unreliable, given the description that there was at the time. I think that it was later bolstered in other ways uh, at the second committal hearing, but and. and it doesn't really, the, the actual playing out of the of the case, I think, is beyond what we need to discuss today. But in terms of the the court assessed on its face, saying, "Well, look, if you only saw this person briefly in a dark alley, you're if that's the only identity uh, evidence of identity, um, then that's not going to be uh, it's, it wasn't considered reliable." Um, we've also dealt, well, I think we were both on a case where we dealt with an availability issue, which was in a telemarketing case where, uh, the, um, I think what had happened was that the main, the main telemarketer, the main organizers of the telemarketing scheme had been sent down to California. They then turned on all their employees and some five or 10 years later, uh, two of the unfortunate employees, uh, or alleged employees were, um, uh, were sought, uh, in Canada. Um, and the record of the case had not been, uh, not much work had been done to update that record of the case. And because there were elderly victims in the United States, and, uh, we had a particularly diligent summer student in our office that year, and it turned out that several of those elderly uh, alleged victims had passed away, and that wasn't indicated in the record of the case. And by the time we got to, I think we were at the fourth or fifth supplemental record of the case, um, the committal judge finally said, well, look, the availability of this evidence is no longer, uh, or, or the presumption of availability of this evidence is, is no longer um, something that I'm going to rely upon. Uh, and so, which is one of the few cases, usually it's, uh, um, uh, uh, um, and I think that's the only extradition case I've ever won at the committal stage. Uh, and, and in fact, I, I think that in Amanda's career, she's probably lost what, maybe two. <laughs> Actually, I don't even know if you were on the second one that there's, a, I think in BC, there have only been two or three that were unsuccessful at committal. Uh, the, um, but let's just say it's very rare for Amanda's group to lose, uh, at the committal stage. 
um, the, uh, or at least in my experience, maybe you guys are losing it with other, with other counsel and I'm, I'm not aware of it, but, uh, well, I think one of the things to remember with extraditions is that they go through a lot of review before anything happens on them. I mean, they've gone from a summary from the prosecutor in the foreign state through an official liaison into the international assistance group. They're reviewed by the staff there. They're reviewed by us when we receive them. I mean, there's a lot of eyes and a lot of analysis that goes into these before they even go forward. So if there are problems with the evidence, um, there may, I have no idea how many extradition requests are refused because the evidence simply isn't there. So when you are seeing an extradition request um, being implemented, you are seeing the ones that have already passed all the screens. Well, and I have to say from the perspective of the defense, um, usually my engagement with extraditions is when I have a client who comes in who's facing extradition and the extradition is already being approved. Um, the vast majority of my engagement in terms of trying to uh, – protect my client's interests is with counsel in the requesting state. So I immediately retain, we immediately retain counsel in the requesting state and we figure out what can be done to assist uh, or work out a deal or make arrangements. And sometimes what we do is we actually um, enter pleas. And I think, you know, we entered a plea uh, for, for one client. And I remember doing it uh, over Skype out of uh, the Fraser Regional Correctional Center. I was on Skype with my client, with an RCMP officer next to us, uh, with a judge in Fort Bend, Texas, uh, that they had a laptop set up on there uh, with counsel. And uh, the plea was entered and the client, uh, who was not from the United States, uh, never had to go down to the United States, entered a plea, ended up with a conviction down there. And that was a very positive resolution from his perspective of not ending up in a Texas jail, uh, which was a priority for that particular client uh, for understandable reasons. <laughs> it's, uh, not, not one of my basket of, of life ambitions, uh, <laughs> ending up in a Texas jail either. Uh, but often that's the, the engagement from, uh, from the defense perspective. We'll be trying to figure out what can be done. Or in other cases, it'll be a question of getting assurances. Um, and, and maybe we'll, we'll move on to, uh, I don't know if there's anything else you want to say that you think is important for us to cover about the committal stage. Well, I, um, I think just... Going back to your, your, you know, making a deal down in the United States, etc., uh, we certainly have cases that resolve by way of a voluntary agreement to go to the United States. Uh, the Extradition Act enables people to consent to committal, where essentially they say, yes, you know, it, it would be an offense in Canada, and then go straight into the ministerial consideration at the surrender phase. Um, there is the opportunity to waive all of your rights and just say, yep, I'll go back. I've had that happen where people have simply said, fine, just send me. Um, most people don't do that for various reasons. And we'll talk about specialty, for example, uh, when we get into the ministerial consideration. But, you know, there, there are various options that can be be pursued because obviously all of these court processes, if you hire defense counsel, etc., have an impact on people in terms of time and money and effort and stress. So when counsel are are faced with an extradition and and assisting a client with extradition, um, you know those kinds of arrangements are certainly worth looking at. If what your client wants is resolution as opposed to dragging it out for however many years. Well, and often dragging it out doesn't puts you in a worse situation when you get down to the requesting state. So in some cases, it's even just a question of the likelihood of getting out on bail 
while you're at, you know, on trial. Um, and that can be the advantage that's gained by going down earlier voluntarily. And so it depends on the cases. But all of that I always do with the advice from counsel in the requesting state. I would never be advising a client or even engaging with prosecutors in a requesting state. I, I don't. Uh, uh, I'm very leery to ever engage in discussions directly with a prosecutor in a requesting state. Well, you may find that prosecutors in the requesting state simply will not talk to you because as a Canadian lawyer, you have no no ability to speak to something in the United States. So it's not at all uncommon for American prosecutors to want an American lawyer because obviously they have their own undertakings, their own codes of conduct, et cetera, uh, that bind them. And so you will often find that, that a prosecutor will simply say, I don't, I'm not going to talk to a Canadian lawyer, get American counsel and we'll talk to them. So in, in terms of the, the next stage, so if there, if there is a committal, which in, in the vast majority of cases, we do see committals uh, on at least one or more of the, uh, the offenses. Sometimes it'll be a committal on something more restricted. So sometimes there'll be an allegation of murder and there's a committal on manslaughter or there's a committal on one portion of uh, the alleged offenses. Uh, and then the next stage is, is the surrender stage. And that looks a lot more like what immigration lawyers are more familiar with. So what we see in, in these and what my experience in these cases is that you go from what's familiar to criminal lawyers, which is being in superior court, making arguments in front of a superior court judge uh, with, you know, often arguments around search warrants and, and the sufficiency of evidence and, and these types of things. Uh, there we move into a phase that looks a lot more like what we do as immigration lawyers. And it's an administrative law phase uh, where you make written submissions to the minister uh, on surrender as to why it is unjust and oppressive for your client to be surrendered to the United States. And even in terms of the appeals, things look a lot more like uh, immigration law. So the committal is you can appeal that in an appeal to the uh, the BC Court of Appeal, in our case, but to the Provincial Court of Appeal. Um, the surrender decision, uh, although it goes to the Court of Appeal, uh, is a judicial review. And so you end up with all of the things that we've, uh, listeners of this podcast will be familiar with some of the issues uh, coming out of judicial review. And if you're, you're not familiar, you can go back and listen to some of our previous episodes if you want to get into the intricacies of, uh, of issues around judicial review, but those issues don't always come up in the, the uh, appeal context, but they do in the judicial review context. But when we talk about surrender and the, the surrender decision, um, so there's, there's two aspects to that. One, we've got the whether or not the person will be surrendered. And the second part is whether or not it will be on conditions. Um, and often what we're arguing for are, well, obviously we're arguing for don't surrender my client at all, um, which is in some cases successful. Uh, and, and we've had success. Uh, actually, we've had more success in our office at the surrender stage than we have at the uh, committal stage. Um, there's more scope there for discretion. And we had one client who was in the last stages of uh, a very serious illness, and essentially the minister just decided to let him live out the rest of his days here, which were not going to be particularly lengthy uh, in, in the circumstances, or, or that seemed to be the, uh, the diagnosis or the prognosis at the time. Um, I don't actually know what... I can hope. Well, anyways, I, I don't. I don't actually know what, what's happened in that, that particular case. Um, the um, 
or we'll see restrictions. And so do you want to talk a little bit about the types of restrictions that we'll see uh, in these cases in terms of assurances? Um, uh, maybe we can go back to talking about I mean, the, the most controversial or not controversial, the most prominent ones are around death penalty assurances. And maybe we can talk a little bit about how those came about and, and where that change in the law took place. Well, this again gets back to this idea that what you're looking at with um, extradition is a diplomatic process. So when the minister is considering surrender, the minister is considering the fact that if there's a treaty, for example, they've agreed to extradite this person provided that double criminality is met. Um, there is this international idea that, you know, I will help you in your prosecutions. You will help me comedy, respect for other nations and so on. So the minister is considering international obligations as a member of the international community. They are considering charter rights. They are considering personal circumstances. And as you've said, this is familiar stuff from administrative judicial, um, pardon me, administrative reviews by officials. But when we talk about when and where assurances are appropriate, an assurance is essentially a condition on sending somebody the Extradition Act has various provisions for when the minister shall refuse surrender. It's mandatory language in the Act. And these are, are set out in the Act as under Section 44.1, for example, where the result would be unjust or oppressive. When you start looking into the case law, there tends to be a blending of this language and Section 7 charter language. But... Taking the case of the death penalty, for example. Just to, to remind people, Section 7 of the Charter guarantees the right to life, liberty, and security of the person, except in accordance with the principles of fundamental justice. Yes. And that's often where a lot of the argument takes place, is that second part, uh, the, the principles of fundamental justice. That's but, right. In any event, sorry, I didn't just... Uh, so in terms of, of um, the death penalty argument... The death penalty is one of those those things that on an international level has received a lot of attention. There are um, agreements with respect to not pursuing death penalty um, in certain offenses. There uh, has been a great deal of human rights activity around the death penalty and its imposition in various states. Canada has treaties with countries who still have the death penalty. And so the question becomes, well, if you're going to extradite somebody to a foreign state where they may subject somebody to a penalty that's been abolished in Canada for human rights reasons, um, is that appropriate or is that a breach of Section 7? In particular, Canadian citizens um, have a concern that if they're going to be sent to a foreign state, they may be subject to a penalty that simply would not face them here at all. It's not about the length of a sentence. I mean, this is the ultimate sentence. You, there's no way of coming back from this. And so the court in a case called Burns and Raffi considered under Section 7 whether or not the idea of sending somebody to the death to possibly face a death penalty without any assurances could be a breach of Section 7 and whether or not this uh, should be permitted or whether the Minister of Justice should be required to seek assurances against the death penalty. Because at that point, the assurance was, there there were no assurances with respect to um, extradition for Burns and Raffi. They were sought for very horrific murder. 
And so the assurance had been given and the court said, well, you know, there may be instances in which this is something the minister has to consider. We're not saying you can't extradite them. We're saying because of Canada's history with human rights, because of Canada's position on the death penalty, you should not extradite them without an assurance against the death penalty. And what that assurance would be is essentially a diplomatic promise from the receiving state that the person extradited will not be subject to the death penalty if convicted. Well, there have been two previous cases prior to that when Justice Lafleur was still on the, on the court. And for those of you not familiar with extradition law in the Supreme Court of Canada, there was a 20-year run where Justice Lafleur, who coincidentally was also an extradition lawyer for the Department of Justice prior to his, his sitting on the Supreme Court of Canada, wrote extradition law for a 20-year stretch. Uh, and two of his cases, um, the cases that he had written, I think it was Kindler and Ng, uh, both said it was okay to send people back. Um, and so we have seen a shift in extradition law since the departure of Justice Lafleur, uh, um from the Supreme Court of Canada. And Burns and Raffi was probably the first uh, big departure from the uh, the law that had been established under uh, under Lafayette during his tenure on the court. Um, and I think it's important to recognize that that decision was based on changes in Canada's position on the death penalty, both domestically and on the international front. In other words, that uh, to extradite somebody to face the death penalty would be inconsistent with Canada's position on that issue as expressed through their their international actions and domestic actions. So it was essentially bringing, um, uh, bringing Canada's extradition response into line with what Canada had already expressed to be its position. And as I said, you, we're not saying you can't extradite these people. You just have to have an assurance against the death penalty. So where things get a bit more complicated is when you deal with things just short of the death penalty. And so we have a couple of cases, uh, um, both in terms of uh, the conditions of imprisonment. We have a particularly, uh, from my particular, from my point of view, vulnerable uh, line of cases in, in British Columbia that deals with some pretty horrific prison conditions. I believe it was in Alabama or Georgia or something like that. And there was ample evidence that there were like snakes and Scorpion, or I forget what it was. I mean, there were snakes and bugs and and uh, just horrific prison conditions uh, that would never be acceptable here. Um, and our court basically said, "Well, commit a crime in Alabama, go to prison in Alabama, not our problem." Um, I I think that line of cases is somewhat vulnerable. Um, but what we're seeing in the, in the present uh, right now before the court is a case called Badesha. Um, and Mr. Badesha is sought in India with respect to an honor killing. Uh, the details of the case, I don't think, matter for our purposes. Um, but the the finding from our court of appeal, um, and we talked about this case, uh, I believe, when uh, when Marilyn Sanford was on our was on with us, uh, but in a, in a previous uh, kit, um, time, we talked about the Badesha case. The uh, Situation in uh, India, there's ample evidence of serious human rights abuses in the prisons in Punjab and that Mr. Badesha may well face torture or uh, something along uh, in terms of serious uh, abuses on the human rights front. And the question, there are two questions that arise in Badesha. One is with respect to uh, whether or not assurances are uh, necessary 
in the circumstances. So in other words, should, uh, should someone be sent back without assurances? And secondly, um, should assurances even be, and then we have case law in the deportation context that where the federal court has made findings that assurances from a state that engages in torture should not be relied upon in any event. Um, any, any state that disrespects international law to the, to the extent of engaging in torture uh, should not be uh, relied upon to make uh, assurances for something that on its face they shouldn't be doing in any event. Um, and so I think that's where it's somewhat different than, because usually countries will simply deny engaging in torture anyways. It's not, um, uh, it's not something that many countries openly, um, uh, unlike the death penalty, where the United States very openly and transparently says, yes, we kill people. We, we, and we have executions. The, ex- the executions are very public. They're done in a very open and transparent way. Um, the, and so there, diplomatic assurances play a very different role than when you're dealing with torture where the country denies doing it in the first place, which is the position that India takes in this case and, and would take in any event. Um, do you have any any thoughts on on Badesha or I mean Badesha or on this issue in general? I'm not, I don't know if you're in a position to take any make any comments on Badesha itself. But um, do you have any any thoughts on on what this means and, and where this is going to go with the Supreme Court of Canada? Well, the Court of Appeal decision is available online for anybody who wants to read it. It has leave has been sought to the Supreme Court of Canada. Essentially, what the Court of Appeal said in its decision. Um, was that the assurances against torture, which had been received by the Canadian government, the arrangements that had been put in place that were were offered by India, um, that they they weren't sufficient for the Canadian government to be satisfied that India could carry those assurances out. So that's in the Court of Appeal decision, and their reasoning in that respect is there for people to see. I think what has to be remembered about assurances – is that they have to be particular to an individual. There are often complaints about prison conditions on a general level. There are complaints about Canadian prison conditions. I'm sure that you can find all sorts of people who say that the conditions in Canadian prisons are unsatisfactory and violate human rights and so on. When you talk about assurances, you you need to remember that It is the individual being sought for extradition who has to be directly affected. And so in terms of addressing that, the minister is going to be less likely to consider assurance as if it is a generalized argument. It has to be something specific. I would note that in Badesha, the minister did accept assurances with respect to the availability of medical care, for example, and the Court of Appeal upheld those. So it's not that all assurances by the minister are are subject to uh, being overturned by a court. Certainly assurances can be given, assurances can be found to be sufficient. And whether or not the assurances with respect to uh, protection from torture were sufficient or not, based on what was provided um, by India, the Court of Appeal did have a very strong dissent who found that the assurances provided by India, that it was reasonable for the minister to accept those and to surrender on the basis of those assurances. 
So the final answer obviously rests with the Supreme Court of Canada, whether they take the the case in terms of... Um, so, you know, the, the, the question of assurances and what is a sufficient assurance um, certainly can be subject to judicial review. Whether or not those assurances are sufficient, um, again, gets back to the question of, of reasonableness of the minister in accepting those assurances. In terms of the information that the minister has received, was it reasonable for the minister to accept those assurances? And so that's what we, we came back before in terms of talking about the deference that's given to the courts, which will make this whole process feel a lot more like an immigration uh, proceeding. And, and this whole process will be very familiar to anybody who's prepared a pre-removal risk assessment or a humanitarian and compassionate application or ministerial relief applications uh, for inadmissibilities. Um, the process looks very similar. Uh, it's it's very paper-based. And the evidentiary um, uh, thresholds in, in the Badesha case, a, a lot of the evidence being relied upon would be very familiar to any refugee lawyer. Their Amnesty International reports, their Human Rights Watch reports, they're, they're the types of things that we would put in either on a refugee claim or on a pre-removal risk assessment um, in terms of the types of, of uh, um, evidence that's very, uh, um, there's a, a, a more flexible uh, approach to evidence and also a lot of deference to the ministerial decision uh, when we get to the appeal stage. Um, so I, I see that we've been uh, we've been talking for you've been very generous with your time. Uh, we've uh, we've covered uh, a lot of uh, a lot of this area. I'm sure we could say we could talk for another uh, couple of hours. And uh, Amanda and I have been both been known to take up more than more than one or two hours of the court's time talking about this stuff. Uh, but uh, I don't know if there's anything that you wanted to to say. If there's anything we missed in terms of important things people need to know about extradition or the direction that things are going in. Um, what do you see as the future in, in this area? Do you, do you have any thoughts on uh, what we can see in the future for extradition or, or the directions that this area of, of law is going to go in? Um, well, as I said, I think, you know, this whole idea of, of transnational crime via the Internet, um, things like conspiracies, things like child um, offense, child um, protection type offences. I think we're going to be seeing a lot more of that, both in line with Canada's international commitments and also simply the fact of the modern world that we live in, that we live in each other's pockets through the internet. And so I think that the, you know, the, the movement of crime across borders is something that's been occurring all the time. There is crime that essentially exists in the digital world in terms of, um, you know, transfers of, of vulnerable or valuable information. Fraud is one of those, those crimes that is blossoming in the Internet age. And unfortunately, um, the, the child pornography and those types of offenses are blossoming as well. So I don't think that you and I are going to be out of a job anytime soon. And I think that there are, are very interesting questions to be answered in terms of modern technology and how it all interrelates, um, evidence gathering issues, which you and I and the courts will have to wrestle with as we as we go through cases in the future. And, uh, and I see, I think those are all, uh, um, I agree with a lot of those things. I think that we're going to have a lot to, uh, this is going to continue. 
No, I, I agree in terms of what's going on with the uh, um, the direction in the future. I think this is an area that's going to become more and more and more relevant as people move back and forth across borders, and as we're more and more integrated with uh, with our neighbors uh, around the world. Um, despite uh, some of the movements to the contrary that we see in some countries, uh, in particular south of the border uh, right now, um, I, I don't think. My view is that those movements are not going to go. Uh, I think they're a, a, a reaction to what is inevitably going to be a more integrated world, uh, and where people are more integrated with uh, with people around the world. And, and the reality is, is that law enforcement is going to have to keep up with that. Um, so well, tra- travel is cheap. Travel is cheap, and and quite frankly, uh, offenses can be committed with ease from around the world. And if we're going to live in a stable, secure world, we need to start dealing with those issues, uh, and we need to start cooperating more. We're going to cooperate more and more to try and deal with those issues because the security of one is the security of all. Uh, well, and that is a fundamental principle of extradition: this idea that that every state belongs to an international community that has an interest in battling crime and that we should assist each other. And extradition is, is one piece of that puzzle. Oh, and one of the things that I've, uh, I've over and over again try and uh, that you know, exporting dangerous people into uh, failed states is not a recipe for global security. Uh, and, and it's, it's uh, you know, we talk about, you know, when you, if, if you have any illusions about what happens when you deport an untreated sex offender into Somalia or Afghanistan or uh, Central America, where you have failed states, um, the idea that the children there are safe is ludicrous. Um, it's just that you decide whether or not you care about those children. Um, I think those are uh, really some of the challenges that we're going to face as a global society. Um, and I, I think these issues, I agree, we're going to be, uh, I don't think either of us are going to be out of a job anytime soon. So thank you very much for, for joining us today. Uh, I think it was it was great. Hopefully it was uh, helpful for our listeners and for those of those of you who are still with us uh, and, and who I, I expect would have stayed. I I, I found uh, I, I found this discussion to be uh, to be fascinating. But uh, thank you for those for those of you who are still with us. Uh, um, you know, thanks for for joining us for another episode of Borderlines. Uh, you can find us online at borderlines.ca. Uh, thank you to uh, Funk in the Trunk and to Mackety Higgins, our sound technician. Uh, and um, please do, if you have time, uh, take the time to share the podcast with others and uh, rate and review us uh, on uh, on iTunes, uh, SoundCloud or Stitcher, whatever your, your preferred uh, podcatcher is. So thank you very much. Bye. Thank you.